Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 262. Today's big Bible question, did Jesus write a letter and send it to the world? Well, happy Monday, dear friends. A hearty welcome to all of our new listeners from India, Queensland, and New South Wales, Australia, Nova Scotia, Charlotte, and other parts unknown. Thank you for joining us in daily Bible reading and discussion. Thanks for telling a friend, and we would be honored and blessed if you would drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, in whatever country or place you are listening to the show. And uh, if you think about it, share the show on social media. That lets other people join in the journey with us in reading the Bible and uh, discussing it every day, and the more the merrier, I say. Our Bible readings today include 2 Samuel chapter 10, which of course has lots of violence in it, and actually some surprise half-beards as well, plus Psalms 60 and 61, Ezekiel 17, and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, today's title is probably the corniest I've written thus far, and I'm slightly ashamed of it, but it doesn't point us to an important and accurate spiritual truth. Now, I do need to say first, before we get to that important and accurate spiritual truth, that there is supposedly a letter that Jesus wrote. Now, I thought I'd talk to you about that before on this podcast, but apparently it was during a message to uh, our church. So um, here's the thing for you podcast listeners. In the early 300s AD, the church historian Eusebius of Caesarea published what he said was a written correspondent between Jesus and uh, an Arabian king named Abgar of Edessa. Now, Abgar uh, ruler of Edessa was having some health problems, and this is what he wrote to Jesus, and supposedly Jesus wrote him back. So I'm going to read you both letters from Eusebius, who wrote this in the 300s AD. Abgar, ruler of Edessa, to Jesus, the good physician who has appeared in the country of Jerusalem, greeting. I have heard the reports of you and of your cures as performed by you without medicines or herbs. For it is said that you make the blind to see and the lame to walk, that you cleanse lepers and cast out impure spirits and demons, and that you heal those afflicted with lingering disease and raise the dead. And having heard all these things concerning you, I have concluded that one of two things must be true. Either you are God, and having come down from heaven, you do these things, or else you, who does these things, are the Son of God. I have therefore written to ask you if you would take the trouble to come to me and heal all the ill which I suffer. Well, again, supposedly Jesus gave the messenger this reply to send to Abgar. Blessed are you who have believed in me without seeing me, for it is written concerning me that they who have seen me will not believe in me, and that they who have not seen me will believe and be saved. But in regard to what you have written me that I should come to you, it is necessary for me to fulfill all things here for which I have been sent, and after I have fulfilled them thus to be taken up again to him that sent me. But after I have been taken up, I will send to you one of my disciples that he may heal your disease and give life to you and yours. Now, did that happen? Eh, it's certainly not in the Bible. And this mention of Eusebius in the 300s is the earliest that uh, we can find where this situation is talked about. But it is a very old tradition, and uh, many churches kind of take it as gospel truth, including many of the Eastern Orthodox churches. And I will say Eusebius is normally a pretty reliable church historian. In fact, he's the father of church history. 
So, eh, could it be? Maybe. I'm going to assume, though, that it probably didn't happen. Um, but there is a letter that Jesus has sent to the world in a very real way. And that letter is you. Let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Actually, on second thought, let's read 2 Corinthians 3 together, and then you can see for yourself how you and I are the letters of Jesus to a lost and despairing world. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter, delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily into the end of the glory of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened, for to this day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So you see that there? You are Christ's letter, according to Paul. Now, letters of recommendation were a pretty big deal in the first century. Uh, Still are today, really, but probably an even bigger deal in the first century. And we see several examples in the Bible of letters of recommendation, including uh, in Acts 18, uh, surrounding the ministry of Apollo. So I'm going to read Acts 18, four, uh, 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, 
showing by the scriptures that the the Christ was Jesus. So the Christians in Ephesus sent a letter to the Christians in Achaia, introducing Apollos and commending him. The Achaian Christians welcomed Apollos, and he had a very fruitful ministry there, at least in part because that letter from the Ephesian Christians opened the door of the hearts of the Achaeans to Apollos. Now, you and I have a similar function, brothers and sisters. We are the letters of Christ to the world. Now, that means a couple of very important things. Number one, I think it means that we bear the words of God and are sent to share the message of Jesus. In the same way that Proverbs 7 exhorts us to write the words and commands of God on the tablet of our hearts, speaking metaphorically, Jesus sends us and his disciples out with a commission to share his teachings to the world. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, because we are to be the bearers of the words and the teachings of Jesus, this is one way that we are the letter of Jesus to the world. We take his words to the world. They're to be on our hearts, on our mouths. We should be sharing them. Now, there's another way we're the letter of Jesus to the world, too. We are letters of Jesus in this very similar way as the letter of the Ephesian Christians about Apollos. We are to be, as Paul says, also in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors of Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20. And as we heard yesterday, we are to be the fragrance of Christ to the world. His presence and word emanating us from, uh, from us in a tangible way. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Our lives, our behavior, our gentleness, our words, our patience, our kindness, our humility, our good works, our love for each other, our love for others, our acts of service in our very lives are to be like letters of introduction and commendation and recommendation for Jesus. We, as followers of Jesus, with his name on us, we should never drive people away from Jesus by our foul behavior, our arguing online, our demanding of our own way, our impatience, our selfishness, or our anger. But we should, as ambassadors of Christ, represent him well. We should smell fresh like Jesus, remembering that the lowly sinners of the world loved him dearly, and we should be letters of Jesus, his words and character written on our hearts, Words and character in such a way that when people read us, they see Jesus and want to know him. So let's give Spurgeon the last word on this. Spurgeon says, The brethren who had dwelt together in church fellowship at Jerusalem were scattered abroad by persecution which arose about Stephen. Jesus had told them that when they were persecuted in one city, they were to flee to another, and they obeyed his command. And in the course of escape from persecution, they took very long journeys Very long journeys indeed for the age of the world, when locomotion was exceedingly difficult, but wherever they found themselves, they began at once to preach Jesus Christ, so that the scattering of the disciples was also a scattering of good seed in broader and further away fields. The malice of Satan was made the instrument of the mercy of God. Learn from this, dear brothers, every one of you, that wherever you are called to go, you should persevere in making known the name and gospel of Jesus. Look upon this as your calling and occupation. 
You will not be scattered now by as much persecution, but should the demands of business carry you into different climates, employ your distant travel for missionary purposes. Providence, every now and then, bids you remove your tent. Take care that wherever it is pitched, you carry with you a testimony for Jesus. At times, the necessities of health will require a relaxation and change of scenery, and this may take you to different places of public resort. Seize the opportunity to encourage the churches in such locality by your presence and your countenance, and also endeavor to spread the knowledge of Jesus among those to whom you may be directed. The position which you occupy in society is not an accidental one. It has not been decreed to you by a blind, purposeless fate. There is predestination in it, but that predestination is wise and looks towards a merciful end. You are placed where you are that you may be a preserving salt to those around." a sweet savor of Christ to all who know you. The methods of divine grace have ordained a happy connection between you and the people with whom you associate. You are a messenger of mercy to them, a herald of good tidings, a letter of Christ. The surrounding darkness needs you, and therefore it is written, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You are intended to warn and rebuke some, to entreat and encourage others. To you the mourner looks for comfort and the ignorant for instruction. Let them never never look in vain. Be the true friend of men, observe their condition before God, and endeavor to reclaim them from their wanderings. If Joseph was sent to Egypt that he might save his father's house alive, you also are sent where you are for the sake of some hidden ones of the Lord's chosen family. If Esther was placed in the court of a heathen king for the deliverance of her nation, so are you, my sister, called to occupy your present position for the good of the church of Christ. Look to it, brethren, lest you miss your life's object and live in vain. Mm, Wow, that's powerful and worthy of hearing a second time. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Sometime later, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanun concerning his father. However, when they arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leaders said to Hanun, their lord, Just because David has sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries in order to scout out the city, spy on it, and demolish it? So Hanun took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. When this was reported to David, he sent someone to meet them since they were deeply humiliated. The king said, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, then return. When the Ammonites realized they had become repulsive to David, they hired 20,000 foot soldiers from the Arameans of Beth Rahab and Zobah, 1,000 men from the king of Makkah, and 12,000 men from Tob. David heard about it and sent Joab and all the elite troops. The Ammonites marched out and lined up in battle formation at the entrance to the city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were in the field by themselves. When Joab saw that there was a battle line in front of him and another behind him, he chose some of Israel's finest young men and lined up in formation to engage the Arameans. He placed the rest of the forces under the command of his brother Abishai. They lined up in formation to engage the Ammonites. If the Arameans are too strong for me, Joab said, then you will be my help. However, if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I'll come to help you. 
be strong. Let's prove ourselves strong for our people and for the cities of our God. May the Lord's will be done. Joab and his troops advanced to fight against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, they too fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab withdrew from the attack against the Ammonites and went to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadizer sent messengers to bring the Arameans who were beyond the Euphrates River, and they came to Halam with Shobak, commander of Hadadizer's army, leading them. When this was reported to David, he gathered all of Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Halam. Then the Arameans lined up to engage David in battle and fought against him, but the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, commander of the army, who died there. When all the kings who were Hadadizer's subjects saw that they had been defeated by Israel, They made peace with Israel and became their subjects. After this, the Arameans were afraid to ever help the Ammonites again. Ezekiel chapter 17 verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable of the house of Israel. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says. A huge eagle with powerful wings, long feathers, and full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He plucked off its topmost chute, brought it to the land of merchants, and sat it in the city of traders. Then he took some of the land seed and put it in a fertile field, and he set it like a willow, a plant by abundant water. It sprouted and became a spreading vine, low in height, with its branches turned toward him, yet its roots stayed under it. So it became a vine, produced branches, and sent out shoots. But there was another huge eagle with powerful wings and thick plumage, and this vine bent its roots toward him. It stretched out its branches to him from the plot where it was planted so that he may water it. It had been planted in a good field by abundant water in order to produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. You were to say, this is what the Lord God says, will it flourish? Will he not tear out its roots and strip off its fruit so that it shrivels? All its fresh leaves will wither, great strength and many people will not be needed to pull it from its roots. Even though it is planted, will it flourish? Won't it wither completely when the east wind strikes it? It will wither on the plot where it sprouted. The word of the Lord came to me. Now say to that rebellious house, don't you know what these things mean? Tell them. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its kings and king and officials, and brought them back with him to Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. Then he took away the leading men of the land, so that the kingdom would be humble and not exalt itself, but keep his covenant in order to endure. However, this king revolted against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, so that he might give him horses and a large army. Will he flourish? Will the one who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still escape? As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, he will die in Babylon, in the land of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and vast company, will not help him in battle when ramps are built and siege walls constructed to destroy many lives. He despised the oath by breaking the covenant. He did all these things even though he gave his hand in pledge. He will not escape. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, As I live, I will bring down on his head my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will spread my net over him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and execute judgment on him there for the treachery he committed against me. All the fugitives among his troops will fall by the sword, and those who survive will be scattered to every direction of the wind. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken." 
This is what the Lord God says. I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain, so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. Then all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the tall tree and make the low tree tall. I cause the green tree to wither and make the withered tree thrive. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Psalm chapter 60, verse 1. God, you have rejected us. You have broken us down. You have been angry. Restore us. You have shaken the land and split it open. Heal its fissures for its shutters. You have made your people suffer hardship. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have given a signal flag to those who fear you so that they can flee before the archers. Selah. Save with your right hand and answer me so that those you love may be rescued. God has spoken in his sanctuary. I will celebrate. I will divide up Shechem. I will apportion the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. And Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. I throw my sandal on Edom. I shout in triumph over Philistia. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? God, haven't you rejected us? God, you do not march out with our armies. Give us aid against the foe, for human help is worthless. With God, we will perform valiantly. He will trample our foes. Psalm 61, verse 1. God, hear my cry. Pay attention to my prayer. I call to you from the ends of the earth when my heart is without strength. Lead me to a rock that is high above me, for you have been a refuge for me, a strong tower in the face of the enemy. I will dwell in your tent forever and take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. God, you have heard my vows. You have given a heritage to those who fear your name. Add days to the king's life. May his years span many generations. May he sit enthroned before God forever. Appoint faithful love and truth to guard him. Then I will continually sing of your name, fulfilling my vows day by day. Amen and amen. Dear friends, may the Lord bless you and give you health and strength and guide you. Godspeed.